Welcome to the Rebel High Command Cast, an Imperial Assault podcast for 2023 and beyond. This podcast is hosted by the IA Command YouTube channel and sponsored by listeners like you through Patreon. If you want to support IA content in 2023, head over to patreon.com slash command and become a patron today. This is episode number 11. I'm your host, TV Boy, a.k.a. Noah, and I'm joined by my co-host, The Second Flock, a.k.a. Wesley. Wesley, how you doing? Hey guys, how's it going? I'm doing great. I think this is our first episode of the new year, correct? Yep, first episode of the new year. And we're going to kick it off this year with a, a really episode I've been wanting to do for a while, which is a episode about Turn Zero, which I think is pretty fitting for the first episode of the year. Mm. So... Yeah going to be talking about um, basically how what what to do before the game even starts um, specifically for skirmish so deployment um, choosing zones all that stuff everything that uh, you can do to help you win the game before the first turn even starts um, but before we get to that um, we have some community updates for you Alright, we actually have a lot of news to go over today, but before we do, I want to say a big thank you to my supporters on Patreon. A huge thank you to Jessica, Robert, LoopFC, Derek, Benjamin, and Sean. I really appreciate you guys who contribute to the channel and to the show. Uh, it means a lot to me and it helps keep things going. Alright, let's move on to the big piece of news. Adepticon in 2023 is a go for Imperial Assault IACP. We do have a tournament that has been uh, scheduled. If you go to their page, and we'll link it in the channel, the description in the show notes. Um, if you go to their page and you go to their event list, uh, you will find that if you go to category and go to Star Wars Imperial Assault, there is one event listed, and that is where you will find us. This is the IACP skirmish community championship it's going to be on the 25th of march uh is happening in schaumburg uh the it's going to be 10 a.m to 5 p.m so pretty much the whole day that's just if you're making into the top four otherwise it's going to be four rounds of swiss um so definitely check it out if you're interested in traveling um definitely make start making your plans now it's going to be a lot of fun it was a huge Huge event last time, although there wasn't that many players, but we had a ton of prizes. We're going to have prizes this time as well, so make sure you check that out and sign up. Um, the other thing to note is that the community championship cards uh, are also available to order, so make sure you check that out. Um, there is a the article on the ICP website. Uh, those are ready to get shipped out to people. All you got to do is send me an email to iacontinuityproject.com. Let me know... Um, how many you want, what you're going to be using them for, uh, and your address, and I'll send you an invoice with how much it's going to cost with shipping to your address, and then it goes straight from the printer to you, and I make no profit off of that, so this is all for the community. Orders are going to be open through 2023 for that. Uh, the final piece of news we have is the community make a card event. This was just announced this week. Um, so if you are interested in designing, a, helping to design a card for IACP for the upcoming Season 8, this is something you want to pay attention to. Uh, this is going to be a multi-week project uh, through, I think, week nine weeks. Uh, we're going to be doing votes on different aspects of a card. So basically the community gets to design a card together. We're going to be talking more about this in next uh, the next podcast episode, so definitely check that out, and that'll be coming out before the first week of voting happens. 
so that is it for the announcements, and we'll go back to the show. All right, and we are back. Um, quite a few updates, I think, in this one. A lot going on. I feel like I've been pretty stretched as far as making stuff happen in Imperial Assault lately. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that from some of your efforts across the different uh, sites that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on, a lot happening, a lot going on in the new year. Um, Which is exciting. Definitely. Uh, let's see, so let's go on to our comms chatter section where we shout out a listener email or comment from a previous episode. And this episode I want to um, shout out a comment made by Dylan McGill. Um, Dylan commented on our last video, uh, 2022 in review, uh, commenting on my custom campaign woes, uh, saying, I feel your pain regarding designing missions. He's currently working on a mini campaign, and um, he's trying to figure out the finale missions. He's, and I, I'm going to shout out his comment because it has some actually uh, useful advice, I think, for folks that are trying to design their own custom campaign. Um, he says, my first few missions I thought about the story slash objective and tried to find existing missions that have a similar skeleton to them, then mash the elements together and it's made for a decent starting point to balance from. Um, so I like Dylan's advice there of like, figure out your story, what story you're trying to tell, and look at examples from the game and then um, you know tweak it as you need it. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good piece of advice. I would also go to say that not every mission in Imperial Assault is the most balanced, mm-hmm. but I think if you wanted some additional uh, guidelines on what kind of missions you would feel more, most confident using, if you've played the game a bunch um, and you feel like some missions were really good and had the feel that your group likes, those are the ones you might want to start with. But I know that for each expansion, there's a Board Game Geek thread that you could look up uh, where they had users pull which side on their groups wins each mission. And it's supposed to be for Rebels and Imperials at kind of the same experience level. So it's kind of supposed to give an overview from the poll results of how roughly balanced each mission is. Uh, so if you wanted to look at that and get a better idea of which missions are closest to even to balance your own games from, that would be a good idea. And I would also say, just keep in mind the threat level that the mission that you're going to base your mission on is meant to be played at. Right, so if you do Aftermath, the original mission of the core box, it's a mission that you play at two threat, you wouldn't want to design a finale based on that unless you were to make some tweaks to the open and reserved groups. Uh, Yeah, definitely important to think about if you're, when you're designing your missions, if you want your mission to be like a set part of the campaign at a certain point or if you are designing it to be like a side mission that can be played at any threat level um, the way those usually work is they like give you threat equal to double the threat level to kind of like scale it to any point in the Mm -hmm. campaign and what they tend to do is have less open and specific reserved groups and give you just more events that give you threat equal to the threat level Right, exactly. Um, Alright, so let's move on to our rules question of the week section. 
So this is where we look at the most interesting rules question asked in the community this week, or at least since we last recorded. It's been two weeks since we took uh, took the uh, New Year's off as a break. And this one I picked, uh, this was a, an interesting one just for me. It was kind of a nostalgic one almost. Um, we had Tuuru um, in Discord asking about a imposter Sabine card that he found in his his packs. Um, so, for those that don't know, um, there's two Sabines. There's one for Skirmish and one for uh, Campaign. And the Campaign version um, is slightly different, but it's very different depending on which box you open it in. Because there's the one copy in the Lothal box without a miniature. And then there's another, there's supposed to be another copy in the Sabine and Zeb figure pack. Uh, and I think the one in the Sabine figure pack is the one that the evasive maneuver action gives you four movement points instead of two. Uh, right. And so he was asking, like, what's up with the difference? Like, which one am I supposed to use? And I saw this while I was, like, driving around doing some errands, and I was like, oh, oh, I I know what this is about, because I remembered this came up when, the, when it first came out back in, like, 2018. Um... And I was like, "Oh no, I know what's going on." Because somebody, I think, I think it might have been you who, answer, who was answering, like, just that the 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 campaign versions and the skirmish versions are different. Yeah, the way I interpreted his uh, question was, "Why are there two different Sabines?" And I'm like, "Well, uh, let me look up Sabine. Uh, it looks like there's a campaign <laughs> version and a skirmish one." And he kept saying, "No, that's not what I mean. It's two Sabines." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's two Sabines." So I was like panicking because I was like, I, I was trying to upload a screenshot of the FAQ. And it, yeah. and Discord wouldn't let me. I was like, this file's too big. So I was like, ah! So <laughs> I had to, like, upload it to Imgur and then post the link because uh, I, 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 I saw what was happening. And um, so, yeah, so basically they misprinted the campaign Sabine in one of the packs, and you're supposed to use the one that gives you just two movement with evasive maneuvers. Um they are different. The campaign and skirmish versions are different. The campaign version is actually, I think, just worse. Uh, it you, it loses mobile, and the surge for plus one loses blast one. Um, oh. I think... And she loses vehicle, I believe. Oh, as a trait. that's interesting and weird. <laughs> she just doesn't have the jetpack. I don't know why they took away vehicle, but I can tell that the blast one was probably too strong in campaign on top of her um, parting gift, the grenade. Mm. And then mm. you can't have mobile on a rebel figure because it can break certain missions where blocking terrain is supposed to prevent them from progressing. Um, so that's why you never see mobile on like a rebel hero or any of the uh, rebel figures. Interesting. Outside of their skirmish versions. Yeah, something another uh, useful information bit of information if you're designing um, custom campaign cards, don't give your rebels uh, mobile because you might break your uh, certain missions. <laughs> Note taken. Because um, like I know that Jabba's realm has a map tile where there's like impassable terrain that cuts across the entire tile. I think several of those are like that. So mis certain missions um, might be balanced around the fact that the rebels can't get past that 
uh, tile without opening a door at a certain point or something. Alright, so, uh, note to self, don't give them massive, either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, massive has to be... Shoot, did I give one of my my Imperial figures massive? No, I, I, I didn't. Did. I didn't. I, I did at one point. I had Soren had had massive, had a tank. Oh, I don't think you've, uh, I think that's in your old drive. I don't know if you've maybe uh, re-released them recently, but I have not seen a Soren on the current drive. Yeah, I did. So, I mean, we can talk about that now, because sure. that kind of leads into our next session, which is games we've played. And um, I have not played any games recently, but I have been doing a ton of work on my custom Imperial Heroes campaign over the last week, getting it all updated and ready for the next round of playtesting. So for those that don't know, I have a custom uh, campaign in progress where um, instead of the Rebels... Oh, there he is. My cat is awake. <laughs> instead of the Rebels being the heroes, the Empire plays as the heroes, and then the Rebels are the the minions, um, sort of the overlord players using the rebels, and this is something I've been working on for years now, um, but I finally, like, committed to finishing it last year, and so I've been working on it, and, um, started off with just four heroes, one rebel class card, one mission, uh, early last summer I came out with another mission, and now... I've gotten a ton of feedback, including from you. I know you played it, Wesley, mm -hmm. uh, but a few other groups have also had also played it and given me a lot of feedback. And um, took the feedback, made a bunch of balance changes, and now I've also introduced three new missions with three more missions to come to finish it up. I've introduced two new uh, heroes, Imperial heroes, which includes General Soren and a riot trooper design that was um, heavily inspired by Josh's ideas that he sent to me, and then two more uh, Rebel class decks. Uh, so that is up on the Imperial Assault Reddit now. Uh, I finally posted it. It's ready to go. Version 3.0. And it also includes a tabletop simulator assets. I was able to finally open tabletop simulator I, tr I tried to I tried to open the Imperial Assault um, module and that just absolutely crashed my computer uh, but but just opening it like a clean empty table I was able to do mm -hmm. and then I was able to load up the um, cards that I'd already made and started like copy and pasting the images onto cards and stuff so uh, if you um, if you were to need assistance with that in the future with your tabletop woes, I think anyone can use the cloud for that. So I wouldn't mind uh, helping out if you need some more help with that for version four. Uh, yeah, I would actually I would like that a lot because it's very time consuming. <laughs> Making yeah. custom cards and tabletop simulators very time consuming, but at least it's doable. Unlike Vassal, which is just completely opaque to me. But, um, so yeah, if you are interested in playtesting, I am definitely looking for people to test out the new heroes, test out the new class decks, and test out the new missions. And there are surveys um, in the Google Drive that I linked that you can 
um, submit your feedback to. Also, all the missions have at the bottom like a, a section that explains how to play it as a one-off. If you want to just play test it, it like explains how much XP and credits you should have uh, when you, before you start the mission and how to do what you know what uh, item decks you should draw from to do an upgrade. Sort of like when you start a mini campaign, you get to have that like little mini upgrade stage before your first mission. Right. Um, but it, it is meant to be played sequentially as a campaign. Uh, and now, there, oh, that was the other thing that I introduced with 3.0, is there's finally a rules document that explains how everything works. Um, it explain, and it also has the campaign structure in there. And I finally, like, that was one of the hardest things, is, like, figuring out how the campaign structure works and how, like, the rewards need to work in each mission. I had to go into my automated campaign tracker that I made, like, so many years ago and look at like the structures of the different campaigns and figure out like how much XP, how much credits do you usually get at the have at the end of the campaign mm -hmm. and then work backwards from there and be like, okay, well if I'm starting from zero at the first one, how many missions do I need to get up to what I need and how much so I ended up having to add an extra mission to the campaign structure. So the campaign will be six missions long now. And I figured out I needed three more missions to flesh it out and make it a feel like a full campaign. So that's why Dylan uh, expressed his sympathy to me because I I don't like designing missions; <laughs> they're hard. Yeah, I have not designed any missions yet, but that actually seems like a fun endeavor, but also a time-consuming endeavor. It is. It's time-consuming. Um. So yeah, I posted that. Um, I, the end is in sight it's funny because like somebody else just released a campaign a few months ago and I was like how did you do that so quickly <laughs> Cause I think they've been working on it for a while I think so too um, I think it's easier when you're not trying to completely rewrite the rules in terms of uh, which faction that controls which figures but well if we're talking about the same campaign he did add a lot of custom content there were new deployment cards new types of cards um i didn't i haven't really read that deep into it but i know there were some 70 or 80 cards he added to the game for this oh campaign. 70 or 80 well yeah because yeah. that would be with the heroes and probably the items but like just trying to figure the heroes out heroes are just heroes from the game so it was a lot of enemies, items, and like whatever campaign-specific card type he had added to the game. Okay, I need to try that campaign. I'm just busy with mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it took a um, while to I, figure it out. I would just ask uh, or say, you know, I think it would do good if your campaign had a name. Uh, yeah, that's true. Because several times I've looked up Imperial Assault Villain Campaign, and it's like, hey, you want to buy some villain figure packs? <laughs> is what Google spits out. Yeah, right now it's just the Imperial Heroes campaign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I haven't... I think you give something a specific name, it has a lot more searchability, and it's easier to uh, talk about, and, you know, branding. 
That's a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Anyway, um, how about you? What have you done lately? I think I saw some game logs come from you. Yeah, I I did do about half of my league games in the last week of the year. Um, still using the same list. Going to keep using that for the rest of the couple games I have left. Now that being the double ISBs with general ranks, but more focus on spies than anything else. And you know, at least two or three people have asked me at this point if this was the list, if I was using someone else's list, uh, I think you know what list I'm talking about. It was the double ISBs with generals ranks, and I think they were using the tank when they won some big tournament earlier last year. Uh, that's... So... Josh was playing double ISBs with General's Ranks and Palpatine, mm -hmm. and then Jake won the Adepticon with the tank. Mm hmm. So, two, that's two different lists, though. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the. You said one Adepticon, Jake. And I was like, well, no, not using Jake or Josh's list. This is. You know, maybe I stole the ISB General's Ranks idea, but, uh,. These are spies. These are here to make sure you don't get to have fun with your command cards. Uh, but I had a game against Josh, and I actually recommended uh, you take a look at that log at some point and put it on your channel if you want to. Because um, with that game in particular, it was Josh using his list that I've seen you post a few logs recently. Uh, the scum list that has a lot of those low point figures and the elite Claudite and Onar, oh, Minto. Yeah, the Cad Bane list. Mm -hmm. So he's using that, and I will at least say uh, it felt like in that game I opened and did every single thing to him that a spy list wanted to do. And it felt really good for me, and I imagine it felt really bad for him. <laughs> but uh, the you know, I wouldn't just recommend that to you if it was just a stomp. He, basically, once I ran out of cards to get rid of his command cards, he started to make a comeback, and with a lot of smart positioning, I think at some point actually got... He did get, at some point, uh, more VPs than I had, and he was taking out more of my figures than I had. And I'm not going to spoil the end in case you do want to take a look at that. Uh, but I will say it does come down... It's one of those games that you think goes one way and then it starts to swing the other, and it does in the end come down to a final die roll to determine the, the game. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'll have to so check it out. It's a bit of a nail-biter. I feel like... Yeah, we uh, recently I've been focused on trying to get those tournament game logs out, out there, um, and I had to redo them because, as you pointed out, yeah. one, of the, one of the videos I posted, the the video wasn't keeping up with the audio or it was freezing at certain points and I realized a bunch of I had batch recorded a bunch of um, those and I realized all of them were like that so I had to redo two two game log reviews unfortunately um, yeah but yeah I'll check that out nice and then I've had a couple other games and I think I'm doing Better than I usually do in leagues. I'm three and two right now, and I've got two more games to play. I'm hoping I can stay positive. So that would be a great end. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see. How? How? We'll see if I go up against Herbie's double rank horse soon. <laughs> I don't know. I have to face him, and I just I've seen a lot of logs come out with that recently. 
Yeah, because he played in the tournament. Um, how, how's the league been going, by the way? Uh, it's it's been going good. I think I think I haven't heard from the league organized for a bit, and it was supposed to end on the thirty first. But I know people, including me, have not finished all our games yet. I'm just a little surprised that we haven't seen any kind of. Uh, let's say, updates on the Slack about, like, hey, the league is ending, or hey, you know, we have this many games to still get done, or any kind of push on that end. So, that's a little weird. I know it's still our first time doing Round Robin. Um, But, all in all, it's good getting a bunch of games, and you get to play against kind of everyone in your pool. Yeah, um... This is an interesting format. It's sort of round robin, but it's sort of like not. <laughs> it's round robin, but we didn't want to do fifteen games each, so uh, we cut it down to seven. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard from Derek about that either. I might have to bug him and see what's going on. Yeah, because it would be good if we got an announcement like, "Hey, let's finish up our games in the next week," or "Hey." You know, we, some people have two more games, so let's do two more weeks or whatever he kind of announces or wants to do. Yeah, I'll put a, I'll tag him and see what's going on. Um, not sure. I'll be interested to hear what people feel about that format because that was a bit of an experiment, trying to be more of an open format so people can play games on their schedule on their terms. But I feel like maybe without the weekly pairings announcement, there wasn't so much, um, you know, spurring people on to actually play their games. Yeah, I think maybe we could use a kind of weekly status announcement of, hey, this many games have been played, and remember your league games, and remember, you know, just kind of keep in mind what pace you're going at. I think would help people spur on if there was a weekly update there. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good idea. Um, okay, do we want to move on to our main topic? Yeah. All right. So, main topic: turn zero. Winning on turn zero is going to be the title. I think to be uh, grab some attention. Um, of course, you can't actually win on turn zero in Imperial Assault, but you can sort of win on principle, depending on if you set yourself up for it. So turn zero, this is a term that um, it means different things in different games apparently. Like if you look it up, uh, I looked up turn zero to see what the common nomenclature is for it. And like in Magic, it basically is just a designation for winning on the first turn, like on the first turn of the game. If like there's a lot mm. of turn zero wins. Um, and that's not what it means in Imperial Assault. And Imperial Assault, it actually, the term, the way I'm using it at least, the um, the term comes from X-wing. Uh, it was actually originally coined by the by Paul Heaver, uh, who re- released a famous article, which I'll link to. It's on the FFG website still, um, talking about turn zero. Um, and this was way back in like first edition days. It's quite it was quite famous. Uh, Paul Heaver, by the way, three-time X-wing world champion, uh, one-time Imperial Assault runner-up world champion runner-up finalist should mention so he uh, is also connected to Imperial Assault but he, the article is about X-Wing and basically he talks about um, in X-Wing it's like 
setting your asteroid placement, where you put your ships in the first round. Um, it's all about like the things you can control during the setup of the game rather than once the turns and activations start. Right. So in a game like this, it's before the game starts, and I think what you're referencing is it looks like in uh, X-Wing, you get to place these asteroids which act as terrain during the game. Mm-hmm. And I guess that blocks line of sight, so you can only attack in certain directions, or you, through certain asteroids, uh, not through them, but around them. Yeah. And it's like, oh, if you have a swarm, you want to make sure all your asteroids are in the corners of the board so you can attack your opponent's few ships. And if you have a few ships, you want all that cover in the middle so you can hide and pick them off. Yeah, so Imperial Assault's similar in certain ways to X-Wing in that um, you don't start off the game uh, with a totally empty board, but you also are you also have some control over where things start off in terms of placement and in terms of like how things are set up. So why don't we get into like what this means for Imperial Assault since we touched on X-Wing and we're, you know, we're, we're an Imperial Assault podcast. So, um, yeah. for Skirmish, uh, there's a few things and I'll kind of go through them in the order, like chronologically that they happen during the game. First thing that, I don't know if this is really considered rule zero by a lot of people, but um, I consider it list building. So when you, what you put in your list can often influence what happens during tur- the turn zero, during the setup, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I have things like, um, so the, ma- the main, I think the main one is devious scheme, right? This is right. a card that... Um, I realize I should pull it up on the screen for those watching, but this is a card that um, changes who has initiative and changes who gets to choose their deployment point. Deployment zone. Mm-hmm. So that is like basic rule zero. Uh, not rule zero, that's a different game. Turn zero. Um, influencing, right? And so is there... I listed some other deployment cards here, but what do you think about... Do you have any ideas about list building and how that influences turn zero? Um, Well, so we talk about um, Devious Scheme, and I think explaining why that's a turn zero is a good starting point. So... Turn zero, you, we're going to get into things like choosing which deployment zone is best for you and which one is most hurtful for your opponent. Uh, but a card like Devious Scheme lets you do that. Uh, it makes you pick your deployment zone, and your opponent starts the game with initiative, which is usually good since you get the initiative on turn two or round two when you want to be attacking. Uh, and you also force them to deploy first. So that's another thing is you get more knowledge to decide what you're going to do based on what they do because usually the person with initiative has to deploy first but they at least get to pick their deployment zone now as for other cards you have to find these notes as for other cards in list building uh doubt is i mean doubt's just a powerful card i think maybe what you're trying to hit on with some of the ones you put in these notes is the amount you're going to be able to influence the strategy of the overall game 
-hmm. with these little add-on cards, these little uh, skirmish attachments or upgrades uh, that kind of affect rules in the game that you don't normally use with a lot of your deployment cards. So without being something that you get to control and take away your opponent's focuses, so this is something you want to bring if your opponent has a lot of uh, you know, focusing or hiding units. Even though in Imperial Assault you don't really get to side deck. Yeah. So it's kind of something you bring ahead of time when you're list building to anticipate a meta that has a lot of focus, which our Imperial Assault does. Yeah, and maybe I got a little ahead of things adding these cards in, but I think maybe the core idea here is that like <clears throat> the cards you include in your list can change how you play the game at once it starts um, mm -hmm. so that you need to be thinking about if I put this card in my list how will it change how I want to play the game in terms of setting up my strategy um, so that, I think that's all I'm getting at and with doubt the idea is that like if you're playing if you have doubt in your list you're gonna realize that you can play a more passive game than your opponent and be rewarded because doubt will punish them. Uh, I think is was the idea there. Mm. But maybe we should get into further on into the to the uh, turn zero and then we'll see how that kind of plays out. Sure. So the next um, yeah the next one I have is oh go ahead. I was gonna say uh, choosing the mission would be the next one. Oh. <laughs> I know. At least in the leagues, I don't know how they work in, uh, you know, higher level tournaments. But at least in our leagues, each person can veto one of the random missions that gets chosen. Uh, I have not considered that. So yeah, let's talk about that. Um, in tournament play, you don't get a veto, uh, mm -hmm. but that is something that we've implemented for our online leagues because um, we have each pairing of players randomly chooses their mission rather than having all players play the same mission each each round and so the idea there was well if you get stuck playing the same mission multiple times you could possibly get stuck playing the same mission multiple times in a row um, because of that and that would be boring uh, or frustrating so we implemented the veto rule that which I took from uh, Halo actually had a had that, and I thought that was a brilliant idea. Where if people didn't like the map, they could vote to veto and get enroll for a new map. Um, and I mm -hmm. and that's that's the idea there. But what's the strategic implications there? I haven't really thought about that. Well, actually, you put down a card in list building that I think has a very strategic implementation here, at least example wise. Uh, one would be. So if you were to, say, want to run a Rebel list, in our current rotation, um, one of the best Rebel cards is R2-D2, who draws you cards. But he only has a movement speed of three. And in our current rotation, out of the six deployment zones, only three of them are in a space where your terminal is three spaces away from, or three movement points away from your deployment zone. So if you're going to play Rebels with R2-D2, Currently, you also want to bring Gideon, because Gideon can give R2-D2 the movement points on round one to get to that terminal. But let's say you were thinking about turn zero and you go, well, maybe I'm running a rushdown list. I want to 
have Gideon send one of my brawlers or one of my melee units or just someone else closer to the opponent, I don't want to have to use it on R2 round one. If you veto a mission like the Dabana facilities, where all of the terminals require four movement points to get to, uh, then maybe you get either Earthscrew and you pick your deployment zone, which has one that's three movement points away, or you pick Devron and I believe both terminals are three movement points away, and you then now can have R2 go, and on turn one he can move and scop and get that extra card for you without needing Gideon. And so just by playing Rebels and adding your Gideon and now thinking about what mission you're going to play in Veto, you can kind of help get that extra two movement points in that first round to get to where you want to be with your attacking units. And that's one example. And I think the other example is just overall what kind of map best benefits your current list. Oh, that's a great point. Um... And I remember that that was part of it too, is like being able to veto a, maybe a mission that's really bad for your list um, to make it more of an even playing field. Because that's something that happens in tournaments is some lists are just really good at like one or two missions in rotation, and they will stomp mm-hmm. anybody they play if they're not if that the opponent's not playing a similar list, and that can be frustrating because that's basically like a free win and if you get paired up against that that list when they get their free win mission it can be very frustrating Um, and so having that veto can allow you to try and get a more even matchup or more even mission where both players kind of have the same advantage or not not advantage Um, i mean if you veto uh, you're hoping to roll something that's going to be in your favor that too yeah and and I think we gave both players a veto, right? Yeah, each player can veto once. Right. So, you know, the idea there being, like, if some, if the first player vetoes into a map that's really good for them, then the second player will be like, well, wait a minute, let's veto again and try again. Yeah. Um, Although, like you said, and I think what most people tend to do is just they veto when they don't want to play the same mission again. Yeah. Okay, so... So after... Once we have the map, the mission decided... Um, the next step is choosing your deployment zone, which one player gets to do. Um, and by the mm-hmm. way, I, I didn't me- put this in the notes, but another thing in list building is um, uh, bidding. They, uh, it doesn't come up very often, but if one player has less deployment points in their list than the other player, then they get to decide who gets initiative, but otherwise it's random. Um, you don't now, see bidding too often in Imperial Assault Skirmish. Yeah, I was I was going to say, I think most of the time I see when people want to bid, it's in Scum. And I don't see why people would bid over Devious Scheme. Yeah, you don't usually see Scum bidding. Um, they just run Devious, like you said. I don't know if... You, have you actually seen somebody bidding in a Scum list? I think I did once, and I think I asked the question on this podcast, and I think you gave an answer, but I don't think I remember the answer. Uh, yeah, I don't think you would want to bid because Devious Scheme is strictly better than a bid. Yeah. Um, but Rebels have been known to bid in the past um, because it was so important to get the last activation with Han. Mm. But even that was still very rare, and the reason is that Devious Scheme just invalidates bidding. Um, mm-hmm. just 
even if you bid two points, Devious Scheme just still takes effect. So, and Devious Scheme. I was about to make a joke. Bid two to counter the bid play. Which, again, you get countered by Devious, so. Yep. <laughs> I, I did actually run a bid in Worlds 2019 because uh, Spectre Cell was the list, and so we weren't worried, as worried about running into Devious Scheme. And also it didn't matter because uh, Scum would have 8-axe over Spectre Cell. So the idea was tr I was trying to get the jump on other Spectre Cell lists by getting the round 1, round 2 um, activations chaining. Uh, but it didn't mm -hmm. quite work out. Turns out extra armor is just better. Um, and that's why you don't see bids too often. is because there's so many good 1-point options uh, in Skirmish now. Even in the, the base game without IACP you know, that it's better to just add the second extra armor with <laughs> before you take a bid. And I think if you guys are going to, if anyone's thinking about bidding two in Rebels, just add in another line smuggler, then you can get your last activation. Yeah. Please bump your activation count and make it more likely. Yep. And so that's another thing to think about. Okay, so just wanted to mention bidding. Um, so the next thing is once you've got initiative if you are the player with initiative then you get to choose your deployment zone so that's an important turn zero consideration is um, knowing which deployment zone you want and we talk about this a lot in our map breakdown vid, um, podcast episodes but mm -hmm. typically there is a deployment zone on each map that is just slightly better than the other one um, from a yeah. game design perspective, there's a reason for that, which is that the devs were trying to um, offset the advantage gained by not having initiative on round one by letting the player that gets stuck with the initiative token um, mm -hmm. get to choose the better deployment zone for them and have a slight advantage there. Yeah. Although in a couple of our maps, it seems like it, it kind of depends on which philosophy you go with on which deployment zone is better. Which is good, because it means that there's meaningful choices even when you have the... Even when you're you're trying to get an advantage with the initiative, there's still a, often on each map, it's like different depending on what type of list you're running. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even going back to... Uh, Picking your mission, uh, some of our current maps tend to leave the terminals more exposed than others, and that's even a consideration you can make when you are deciding what map you want to play and where you want to deploy. Is like if you're an Earth screw somewhere around round two or three, you're especially if you're in that top right corner, your your figures are very exposed if they want to be on the terminal. Uh, versus Devron Garrison, where your opponent's going to have to run through your deployment zone if they want to get to your terminal. Yeah, so here's where we're going to get into the the meat, the main point of, of turn zero, is winning on turn zero means doing your research. Uh, it means doing your homework, basically. So there's six missions and three maps in rotation for competitive play. So if you ever go to a tournament, or playing a tournament, you know that these three maps with their two each, missions each are going to be what you're going to be playing on. Um, and so being prepared and knowing how to play your turn zero means you're looking at each map and deciding for yourself 
ahead of time I know that this deployment zone is the one I want to take in most cases against most lists uh, and just knowing that ahead of time for yourself so that you're not trying to figure it out in the moment um, I would say that almost all the maps have a deployment zone that's just better than the other one and so knowing which deployment zone is generally better is a huge win in terms of your you're getting an advantage in turn zero um, but then also the next level is then you know what list you're playing so then you look at it again and be like okay now that I know that I'm playing this list is this still the better deployment zone and should mm -hmm. this be the one I'm picking and then and generally it will be but it's good to think about it and then the next level up above that is if my opponent is playing this list and I'm playing this list is this still the better deployment zone yeah back to the R2 example if you're playing Empire and it doesn't matter to you and you know that one or screw deployment zone is better than the other and you see your opponent brings rebels is it maybe better for you to take the other deployment zone knowing that their R2 isn't going to get a scomp round one or has to waste their Gideon move on it yeah there was a, a famous example within the community um, people might not know this map but now Hutta Borderlands was a competitive skirmish map for a while a bit of a hated one but uh, we'll get past that that um, one deployment Big. zone was in just way better because it had a piece of blocking terrain in front of it and the other one just was completely exposed um, and was blocked off by some impassable terrain on the right that led to one section of the map so it's pretty terrible to get stuck in it and also it was like full of difficult terrain in the deployment zone that makes it hard to deploy um, but in one case uh, some, if someone was playing jet troopers uh, there, were, there were jet trooper players at the time that said they liked the top deployment zone better um, because it gave them freedom to move into an area that normally was blocked off to most other lists and had a, an objective in it um, so that's just an example of like certain maps might have deployment zones that are usually bad but if your list has a certain feature it might open up that bad deployment zone and make it better oh wait this was a competitive map Yes, it was in tournament rotation. Now Hudda Borderlands? I think that's this is a four-player map. Oh, uh, I must be doing the wrong one. Oh, I think it's uh, Now Hudda Swamps, maybe? Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I should pull it up. Gotcha. Video watchers. Oh, for some reason, it's sideways in Nick's map. There we go. So this map, for those watching the video, I've brought it up. You can see there's some um, impassable terrain on the upper right side of the map. Uh, mm. This map was really frustrating. But anyway, um, <laughs> so that, that's just an example of like your list might change which deployment zone is good or bad for you. Um, so that's, yeah. that's uh, the next part of turn zero. Um, so then once you have chosen your deployment zone, um, you want to know where the safe spots are on the map that you can reach on uh, turn one. And I just realized I did not actually load the picture of Nelhada Swamp. So there it is. You can see it now. 
Um, so figuring out where you want to, where the safe spots are on the map that you can move to from your deployment zone. Um, let's take a look at, let's see, and the the line of sight tool is so key for this that Nick Hansen has put together. Um, I'm going to pull up Uscrew. Where is Uscrew? There it is. And, you know, speaking of the line of sight tool, this is uh, it's a lot more important to do your homework on this part for an in-person tournament. Right. Because you're not going to have line of sight tool in person at a tournament. Yeah. So I, I know a lot of people online use a number of tools. So I like to, yeah, I like to, if I know I'm going to play in a tournament, I like to open up this tool and go up for each map. I like to look. Okay, within four to five spaces, where are the spaces, or even more because you can double move, right? So it doesn't even have to be within four spaces. Within like eight, you know, where are the safe places on the map? Um, so like, for example, if you're on the bottom deployment zone, um, I guess Ooster is not a great example because the doors open and close, or are closed in the round one. What, what else do we have? We have Devron and we have... What's the one that just rotated in? Uh, Tibana. Bespin. Yeah, Tibana Bespin. Um, so just looking at, so let's see. So the, the tool has a nice feature where you can block off line of sight. So we'll block off where the doors are. And then you want to look like, okay, what's safe? Where can I move that's safe from my opponent? Uh, round one. So, for example, on Tebana, I'm looking at the top right of the map, where the like two black wall squares are, mm -hmm. and I see. Okay, if I post this guy right here, like two, like three squares down from the very top edge of the map, my opponent can very easily move up to a spot where they can see me and shoot me. So that's not a safe space. So I should need to go one down. And for your reference, Wesley, this is the upper right door. If you're mm -hmm. um, one space up and to the right from that, that space mm -hmm. is much safer because we look at our opponent's deployment zone. We go one, two, three, four, five. They'd have to move six spaces. One, two, three, four, oh, five spaces uh, to be able to shoot. Uh, which means they probably don't have any movement points to move back if they do that. And then you can counterattack whatever figure they do that with. Um, if you yeah. move even further south, then they'd have to move six spaces to get to you, which makes it even harder. Um, so knowing which spaces are safe, um, especially on open maps. So like Bespin has doorways. Um, we don't really have any good examples in the current rotation, but this used to matter for like, uh, like Coruscant, uh, what is it, Senate? Office and like mm -hmm. Lothal Wastes was a was a really good one, not a good one. It was a terrible map, but uh, it's good. It was a good example of like there's no doors to protect you to hide behind. Mm -hmm. So like you got to know, okay, if I put my figure here, they're gonna take a, a bunch of fire from my opponents. But if I put them one back, then my they're safe. And you could know that like I could move. If I want to move out into the middle of the map, like this is a safe spot, and I'm just showing on the video. You can check it out later. But like, if I put him here, or if I put my figure here, 
you know, it might not be as safe from where my opponent can move. So what you're trying to do is round one, where can I put my figure where my opponent cannot attack that figure with just four to six movement points out of their deployment zone. Right. Right. And that's very important. Um, so knowing yeah. one space makes a difference in this game. Yes, and you have to account for your opponent's like extra movement abilities. Um, like if they have Gideon, you know, you have to account mm -hmm. for that. Like they could get extra movement. You really want to be thinking about, you know, if they have a command card in their hand that could give them extra movement. I want to be careful of that. Um, I used to get people a lot with when I was running IG11 with I had like three movement cards in my deck that gave two movement points and so it was very often that with speed 7 IG11 could get a shot on somebody unsuspecting uh, usually a double tap because of rapid fire and then yeah. so you want to be thinking yeah. about that you, Han also really is hard to play against sometimes when you're trying to do this because Right, because he can move eight and still attack you at the end of the round. Um, so you have to be thinking Remember, about Han that. attacks after doors open. And that, I'm still yeah, trying to learn that. That as well. <laughs> you're not so safe painful. on Uskru door missions from Han. Han's end mm -hmm. of round. Same for Vader. Um, and then the next part is knowing which spots on the map on your opponent's side are unsafe. Um, so knowing where which spaces on your opponent's side of the map can be attacked because you have to usually set up your deployment to take advantage of that like if you don't know which spaces are vulnerable on your opponent's board you won't be setting up your figures to be able to exploit that um, so you won't be able to be ready for it and your opponent can actually get an advantage by putting their figures in spaces that would normally be unsafe but they are safe because you didn't deploy correctly yeah. Um, so again, checking that line of sight tool, seeing where you can get line of sight to your opponent's side of the board by doing four to f four to six movement from your deployment zone, uh, especially if you've got an officer or Gideon in your list. Um, and then the next thing to think about, so is uh, the objectives, right? Mm -hmm. So most maps, yeah. or a lot of maps, will have objectives that you can score starting by on round one. And you want to be thinking about how you can place your figures so they can reach those objectives and be able to capitalize. Because if you can get a, head, a turn one head start on your opponent on getting VPs from objectives, uh, that'll be a big advantage. So examples of this would include anything that has objectives that start start out on the map so like um, I don't know I think Deveron has has those mm -hmm. both Deverons are just crate control in different ways yeah so knowing how to get to those crates in time how to get to not just the crates that are close to you but being able to maybe even like sneak a crate that's in the middle of the map um, 
on Devron, not Devron, Uskru specifically, there's those two crates in the middle. Um, and it doesn't show on the line of sight map, so I'm not going to bother, but uh, there's two crates right in the middle of the map, but because of the way the doors are set up, I think you need 10 movement points to get there. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 from the bottom. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, wait. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 from the top. So thinking about, like, can I set my speed, if I have a speed 5 figure, I want to make sure to put them up at the front of my deployment zone so they can move 10 and get to those two middle ones at the end of the round, and I'm getting four extra VPs there. Um, you know, if you don't know how many movement points you need to get to your objective, you're not going to know where you need to put your figures in your deployment zone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's that's another way to look at it that I haven't really thought of. Wow. So that's another reason you might want to pick the bottom of Earthscrew if that's what you want to do round one. Yeah, Earthscrew, that's the, one of the only uh, advantages. And it's only on that one mission. <clears throat> yeah. That has the stashes. Um, I think of... Well, I think the, the cross at the bottom is still a defensive position, right? Um, It's not that great actually hmm. let's see if I can bring up the image I mean it's it's good but it doesn't let you go that far into the map mm -hmm. right you have to stay you can only put two figures behind it for cover and you're still four three spaces away from the middle of the map um, it's okay let's see if you can you don't get great line of sight from it if your opponent's like putting their figures behind the walls on the uh, on their side of the map you do have good line of sight if you move up too and then move shoot and move back but yeah i mean we can um if you move two you can't see behind the upper walls. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's true. Any figures your opponent so, has hiding behind those walls are safe from the from the pillar. Mm -hmm. So it's not, in my opinion, it's not that great if you're in a firefight where you have the two, where both players are kind of hiding behind their walls and staying out of the middle. Hmm. Um, the reason I always say the top is better on Uskru is because of the fountain side, the wall overhangs and juts out um, past the opponent's wall, which gives you a big line of sight advantage. Because you can, you can be two spaces back from the from the edge of the wall and be totally safe from your opponent. You can move two spaces to be right above the fountain and have um, line of sight pretty deep into your opponent's area. Uh, three spaces gives you even more, and then you can move two spaces back to safety. The same is not true of the bottom area. If you're, if you're trying to fight uh, a firefight yeah. by the fountain, you're going to lose if you're at the bottom. Or you're you're going to be at a big disadvantage until you push it up and close the gap. Um, mm. 
I kind of see what you mean. You mean that corner on the top side, right above the fountain? Yeah, you see that wall that kind of that that yeah. line. Because the, the line wall, wall comes out further. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where the terminal is for <coughs> for the upper player. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're gonna congregate there anyway. Um. So that's why I say the upper zone is better for Uskru. Um, but yeah, you can take advantage, especially Greedo, if you have Greedo. So again, uh, based on your list, uh, Greedo is a fantastic figure on the bottom because he is fast enough, he can get to the two middle objectives um, right here, and he's got parting shots, so even though you're leaving him out in the open at the end of the round, as long as he's focused and the door's open, if your opponent kills him, he'll be able to probably kill back because um, uh, you can stand him in such a way that let's see yeah if you stand him on the left side so one two three four five six seven eight nine ten I guess you can't get there um, with ten movement but it's not super obvious how to attack Greedo without giving him line of sight back and often he'll have line of sight to something to kill to shoot at with parting shot. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, the next thing, so we talked about the objectives uh, you want to be aware of. Um, there was one other thing that I wanted to say, and now I've slipped my mind because I didn't write it down. Oops. Um, not good turn zero mm. play by me there. Um... Shoot. Oh well. We'll just move on to our next part of our notes. Um, <clears throat> so the next thing to think about for turn zero is taking the um, time to look at your opponent's army um, and figuring out what they're trying to do and then basing your deployment to disrupt that. <clears throat> and that's pretty advanced strategy. Um, but it's something that the the best players in the game will do. Mm -hmm. I think that a so like an obvious example of this is on Devron Garrison, right? And if you're looking at your opponent's list, let's see, Devron, bring it up. Um, your opponent's list, and you're like, okay, they have some really fast figures, like speed five and they might be wanting to rush me through the bottom and again I keep forgetting to move the uh, the banner there we go they're trying to rush me through the through the the blue area then I don't want to be deploying my figures where they can be attacked so I'm gonna keep them on the far right which you should do anyway but um, far right of the deployment zone I mean um, or like oh they have a bunch of melee figures I am going to put my figures as far back in my deployment zone as possible if I know they're not going to be moving or I'm going to put them off to the side so they can retreat to the other side of the map instead of just putting them up at the front edge of my deployment zone Right. I think just as important as knowing your opponents army and their what their strategy is going to be is you also need your own win condition like your path to victory 
in your head what your list is going to achieve. Yep. Which maybe sounds more simple, but it's it's like when you're list building, you know, besides just putting a bunch of cool units together, what is your path to victory here? Yeah, so I think that's all I have. Um, I can't think of what that was, and I wish I'd written it down while I was thinking about it, but uh, basically deployment, choosing your de your your deployment zone and how you deploy your figures is very important, and mm -hmm. you're trying to think take all these things into consideration while you're deploying. Um, honestly, it's something that if you're new to the game and you're just learning how to play, like you can probably just not think about all this um, because it's a lot to think about and often requires a lot of forethought which if you're learning how to play you're still trying to get a grasp on the rules like you can just focus on learning how to play and just deploy your figures as close to the front of your deployment zone as you can and it'll probably work out um, I think but, it's something that you learn with practice too Yeah. Um, like every game you play you learn a little something new Especially when you make a mistake, you, you learn not to do it next time. Mm-hmm. And that's often uh, what will happen. Yeah. Like, I think one general example of that is in that log with Josh, I think I do use strategic shift at some point when he has seven cards in his hand or something. And, you know, that's a feel-bad moment for him. But then, like one or two activations later I go with Callus and I'm like okay time to fulcrum oh wait I could have waited to use intel leak and you know made him draw the card from fulcrum and intel leak that with Callus or not intel leak but strategic shift with Callus uh, and you've mentioned that combo a few times but that was the moment where I learned how to that I need to look out for doing that yeah Just to get rid of that fulcrum card Oh, I just remembered what it was, finally. Okay, the other, the final thing you need to think about for turn zero and where you're deploying your figures is your support act actions. Um, where you, like for Gideon, Gideon requires line of sight for his actions to focus and move figures. So you want to make sure you're deploying him so that he is either adjacent or has line of sight to whatever figure you're going to be focusing or moving round one because it really sucks when if you've deployed them in a certain way where all of a sudden you realize that your Gideon can't actually see the figure you want to move out until you move a different figure out of its way that you didn't want to activate till later in the turn. Uh, mm -hmm. That has happened to me, and so uh, that is something that's very important um, to think about, especially for line-of-sight-based support actions. Yes. Um, I, in the list I've been running, I have Agent Blaze who is running Motivation, which requires line of sight. And the point of it is to give it to ISB agents who are four points, uh, because they have generals ranks, so they move three. And I remember one of the early games, like the first or second game I did with this list, uh, I did get off a good combo, but it was very hard, and I had to sit and think about it for 10 minutes because I had put an ISB unit back behind cover for safety, and it wound up ruining the line of sight for Blaze to give it to someone else. So I had to, you know, I could have thought about my placement a little better and had an easier line of sight to the rest of my ISBs to get motivation off 
because it was a key piece of what I was doing at the moment. And what I did in future games since then is I, I will put Blaze in a spot in my deployment zone to have line of sight to all four ISVs at the start of the game, uh, just to make sure whenever I am ready to use motivation, I can use it on any of them, or at least the ones that I need at that point will still be open to line of sight. Right. Um, a similar thing to think about, and I'm glad I finally thought about this, was for figures that want to be adjacent to other figures to support them, so like classic example, C-3PO with distracting, um, let's say that you know that you want C-3PO to be next to like your Han or your cunning figure, and you're like, okay, and I want Han to be here at the end of the round, well then you want, you need to, if you're going to activate C-3PO early, you need to know early, ahead of time, where you need to put him so that he's next to Han to give him that distracting bonus. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times that means you need to put 3PO at the front of your deployment zone, so he, because he's only speed 3, and it sometimes means you need to put him in line of sight of Gideon so you, Gideon can get him further ahead and be able to get out to where he needs to be. And if you're not planning for that ahead of time during deployment, you can really mess yourself up where your 3PO can't get out far enough to where he can actually provide cover for Han, and that can mean Han takes a bunch of extra damage than he normally would. Um, yeah. Another example of this in ICP is Yoda, right? You want mm. you want Yoda to be next to your other figures so that he is providing cover with um, the force deflection ability, and if you're not planning figuring out where ahead of time he's often too slow to be able to get up to where you need him to be and still be able to focus somebody in round one um so that's another example of thinking about who you're going to be focusing who you're going to be using like your different support abilities on and making sure that you're deploying your figures in a way that they can take advantage of those correctly in the way that you want to um, that happened to me a lot when I first started playing was like I would just deploy put figures like I'll put my attacking figures in the front and I'll put my supporting figures in the second row and me not thinking about and like I've got them all clumped up and me not thinking about like oh Gideon needs line of sight but I put him one space away from you know this figure that I actually want to focus with him round one and I can't actually focus him until I move all the other figures out of his way but usually you want to activate Gideon first, right? So yeah. So that is. But again, um, you know, you can only you can only learn so much at a time and get it all to stick. So, you know, every time you run the list, you're going to make a few mistakes. And the important thing is that the next time you are a little better at keeping that in mind when you make your plays in the future. So I imagine for me, I would make that C3PO mistake two or three more times before I start getting it right. Uh, I honestly use him more as a round one focus and then a guy that tries to catch up later. <laughs> but I also don't run Han. And honestly, like, that, that is what separates, right, the, like, the good players from the really good players. Mm -hmm. And I'm not criticizing you in any way, Wesley, but, like, no, I, 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 I used to be the same where... 3PO was just a focus battery to me, right? And then I yep. realized as I was playing against high-level players that, like, why do I always have to deal with this plus-one evade all the time? It's like, 
how did 3PO get there? Why is he always where I don't want him to be? And it's because that opponent was is getting the most value out of 3PO. And that's why a lot of people will say that 3PO is like the best figure for his cost is because once you start getting that plus one evade on all your defenses, you realize, oh my gosh, he's so good. Um, and that's that turn zero is giving you that edge, maximizing your utility, utility of your figures and of your positioning um, based on where you deploy. Um, and like you said, it's it's something that will come with practice. It's something that you do need to sometimes just sit down and like I used what I used to do, and I did this before Worlds, is I would open up Vassal for each map and just take the list I was running and practice deploying and figuring out okay for my deployment I want to be able to do this this and this on round one where do I need to deploy to be able to do that okay I have to put this figure here so they're close enough to that objective and this figure needs to go here so you can see that figure and etc etc and uh, sometimes just gold fishing you know that's a is something you can do to practice yeah yeah I know uh, I heard I used to hear a lot that 3PO was like the best for his points and I was like, well, I mean, he's a little hard to kill, and he's a focus battery, and focus is apparently good, but, you know, Gideon does that and movement points, what else does he, what else does 3PO offer? And it's like, oh, the evade, and as I continued playing, I learned the value of that evade, I was like, I started to learn, oh, so, solving the puzzle of how to get 3PO around all of your units whenever your opponent is able to make their attacks makes him crazy worth his points. Uh, so like you said, that does separate the goods from the greats, and uh, everyone gets there, and the more you practice, whether it be in actual games or practicing homework-wise, like opening a vassal and deploying, uh, the better you get. So, I think, so it's all turn zero. I think we did a good job covering turn zero. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Yeah, that was a good one. All right, well, um, before we go, Wesley, did you want to plug anything? Uh, I do have some logs to, to upload from a while ago, so I'll try working on that soon. It's been a busy holiday, but now we're into the new year, so I'm hoping to get a little more time this year working on videos, and that would be at my YouTube channel at The Second Flock. All right, well, thanks everybody for listening and watching. Great to be here in the new year, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. All right. Stay frosty.